Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of January 20th. Back to the grind. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss credit spreads that are now closing in on historically low levels and why we expect a powerful yield grab environment to continue propelling spreads to even narrower levels in the weeks ahead. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, the title of our podcast episode today is Back to the Grind. We are clearly not referring to the work grind as we sit here at our home office for the 10th straight month. Never thought I'd say I missed the grind, but I think we can all sympathize with that sentiment these days. No, but instead, back to the grind, we are referring to the grind in credit spreads, which it's been two weeks since our last podcast. So why don't you get us caught up on the move in spreads in the past couple of weeks? So spreads currently sit four basis points narrower on the year, and that's come amid mixed headlines. So on one hand, we have some pretty bad data, which has been largely expected given the increase in virus transmission rates. And that's something that has been priced and something that the market has been able to look past. There's also been disappointment on the vaccine rollout. And then on the other hand, you have positive headlines with respect to stimulus, which has surprised to the upside. Now, President Joe Biden has proposed a $1.9 trillion stimulus package, which could pose significant tailwind for credit spreads. But I think the main story here with respect to spreads this year so far is that we are now firmly inside of pre-pandemic levels. The Bloomberg Barclays Index closed at 92 basis points yesterday, which is a level we haven't seen since about February of 2018. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. That's definitely the headline for me in credit markets at the moment. The Bloomberg Barclays Index inside of 92 basis points yesterday, a three-year low and less than eight basis points from post-crisis lows, which were hit in February 2018, around 84 basis points. Now, looking pre-crisis, there are some observations there that are narrower than the 84 we hit in February 2018. There is, in a sense, in 05, where credit spreads got down to the 75 basis point arena. And then looking back to the 90s, even lower than that. But we should also acknowledge that we're dealing with a much different index now than we were then. Obviously, since the dot-com bubble burst, really, we've seen the composition of the index start to change, both from a credit quality perspective. We've seen a shift downward in credit quality, as well as a shift out in duration. So we try to normalize for those factors, at least to the extent that we can. Normalizing for credit quality, not as straightforward. But we can sort of normalize for duration and just look at index spread as a ratio to index duration. Now, if we look at that normalized metric, at least adjusting for duration, we are currently sitting at the narrower spread levels since the index started printing daily spread levels in August of 2000. Again, in the 90s, there is data that goes lower than that, but we're looking at adjusting for duration the lowest spreads in the last 20 years or so. And you're starting to see more and more commentary on, well, how much further can spreads go? And I think that that's A very, very important question, Dan, especially given our expectation for spreads to continue grinding narrower. How have you begun to answer that question? It's true that credit spreads are historically very tight right now, but when you look around at other 
asset classes, the same can be said for virtually all risk assets and even non-risk assets. So if you look at equities, there are near all-time highs. Treasuries are very rich relative to historicals. You have 10-year treasuries at just over 100 basis points. Even things like Bitcoin are soaring to all-time highs. It's hard to look around and find something that stands out as significantly attractive relative to historical valuations right now. So I think you have to look at credit spreads in that context and say, okay, even though spreads are very tight right now, you have to park your money somewhere. And there are significantly worse options out there than credit spreads right now. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, obviously one that keeps coming up is break-evens, that spreads only have to widen X basis points to wipe out your carry advantage. And that's, you know, the lowest in decades. And and yeah, that's all true, except you can say that for just about any asset class. Even just look at treasuries. Well, look, treasuries are yielding 110 in the 10-year and much lower than that inside the curve. You take that duration risk and treasuries only need to move higher by X basis points and it would have been better for you to just sit in cash. Like that break-even analysis, that can be made for just about any asset class. So while we accept that that's true, you have to look at the fundamental picture. And the fundamental picture right now for credit spreads is there's just not much reason to expect spreads to move wider. And fundamentally right now, we're in this sort of like period of limbo, I like to call it. Like you talked about earlier, Dan, you, you mentioned how the economic data is starting to take a turn for the worse. And that's true. Obviously, we saw very disappointing retail sales numbers, non-farm payrolls for December, but the market basically looked past it. And I think that's going to be the trend we're looking at here because we have two things. We have a stimulus package that's going to fill some of that hole. And we also have some willingness to look past, given Fed liquidity, stimulus, blah, 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 some willingness to look past this period of rough economic growth until a stronger economic reopening later in the year that will presumptively come when people are widely vaccinated. But on the other hand, we really have no credible evidence that there's going to be widespread vaccinations, that people are then going to return normal, that we're going to get this strong economic reopening. That's not going to happen for months. So we're just in this like sort of limbo period now where you know, from a fundamental perspective, spreads are just sort of adrift while we await evidence that this economic reopening is actually going to meet everyone's optimistic expectations. And without fundamentals really providing a strong push-pull in either direction, I think it's going to really come down to technicals. And I think from a technical perspective, things are looking very good for credit spreads right now. Yeah, Dan, they are. So when we talk about technicals, I think it's important to focus on supply as well as demand technicals. And the demand technicals are extremely strong right now. When you look at, for instance, new issue concessions in the primary market, it's very evident to me how much demand there is out there for credit. New issue concessions have been negative on average for each of the past six months in the corporate market. And that's largely been a function of the Fed urging stronger demand for corporate debt, like we've talked about, given how rich all other asset classes are. And then on the supply side, there's also reason to think that technicals are going to turn a little bit more constructive than they were in 2020. Of course, 2020 brought record heavy supply. We don't expect light supply in 2021, but it shouldn't be as much of a headwind as it has in recent quarters And as a result, we are overall pretty constructive on technicals. Yeah, I want to come back to the supply estimate. We'll talk a bit about supply later on. But I want to circle back first to, you know, one of the key points you made there, and that's that demand technicals remain extremely, extremely strong. And so if from a fundamental perspective, we don't expect spreads to really feel strong influence either way, it's going to be technicals to keep grinding the market narrower. Eventually, higher treasury yields is going to be something that's going to be a concern. But 
Treasury yields have found stability in the past week or so after a run up to 119 in tens. And there's just this growing acceptance that it's going to take a lot for treasuries to get above that level anytime soon until we start to see some of that credible evidence that we're not going to really be able to see for the next few months. So we're going to have treasury rates anchored at very low levels and strong technicals that we think can continue to push credit spreads narrower and rival that 84 basis point low we hit in February 2018. I think that's well within range in the next couple months, but it'll likely be a slow grind there as technicals sort of push their way down and cash gets put to work. It won't be a sharp repricing to the 80 to 85 basis point range. And then I do want to second your point that there is evidence of this yield grab that we've been sort of harping about and is driving our view. There is evidence of it. Net new issue concessions, like you said, have been negative for six months in a row. And I think it's also important to note that they've been more negative for some of the traditionally lower liquidity or lower credit quality borrowers. You're seeing outperformance from those borrowers that's really exemplary of a yield grab type of environment. And then, yeah, I think we should return to your discussion on supply because after a really, really gangbusters first week of the year, IG supply is sort of disappointed these past couple of weeks. Yeah. So to start off the year, we saw $55 billion in IG corporate supply, which is pretty heavy, just a little bit below 2020's pace. But since then, we have disappointed. Last week, we saw just $26 billion. And this week, it's looking like we're going to be even below that. So through the first three weeks of the year, it seems like this is going to be just above the lightest we've had in the past five years, which was 2019. We saw $79 billion. But supply should be considerably lighter than each of the other past five years. And I think that's really important because our forecast for IG supply this year assumed that issuance would be relatively front-loaded. We thought that there would be this period of uncertainty in the beginning of the year ahead of vaccinations, that there would be more issuance at the beginning of the year, and then issuance would slow into the second half of the year. But now, in the heaviest issuance month of the year, precisely in this period when we were expecting uncertainty, that pretends to me a middle-of-the-road to potentially lighter year than you know we were expecting. And I you know in looking at street projections for corporate issuance this year, we were pretty much middle of the pack. It was a wide range this year. We were close to the middle with, you know, a pretty heavy concentration there around the 1.3 trillion mark. So, you know, obviously three weeks, we're not going to draw broad sweeping conclusions over three weeks. It has been, I don't want to say a a high risk three weeks, but, you know, maybe if you look at this January compared to January's in, in the past, we had the special Georgia election, maybe there was some more slightly, you know, reason for caution. I don't totally believe that, as you can tell by my inflection in my voice going way up there. But, you know, I guess the point is, We can't draw any broad conclusions yet, but supply potentially falling short of expectations now has to be on the radar and would only further enhance the rationale behind this yield grab being even that much more powerful and putting that much further downward pressure on credit spread. So I think that's definitely something to monitor. Very quickly, I'll touch on the SSA market. Issuance hasn't been as light there. Obviously, issuance in the government and government-related sectors is going to be much higher this year, just given the outsized government response to the pandemic. But even where issuance has been heavy in the SSA market, you know, we saw 20 billion in issuance last week. That's only the second time since 2010 that SSA issuance has breached 20 billion in a single week. We saw huge demand and negative new issue concessions on most of the deals, particularly even looking at like 10-year JBIC deals or an issue from Korea Development Bank. Like some of these issuers that typically trade at a wider spread, you're seeing negative three, four new issue concessions on those borrowers because you're getting incremental yield there. So really across the credit spectrum, we're seeing this building evidence of yield grab. And I think that's what is really the driving force behind our expectation for credit spreads to continue narrowing here. So Dan, as we wrap up here, we've established we expect credit spreads to continue narrowing, but is there any 
particular way that you prefer to express that view? Yeah. So I think in the IG corporate market, there's a decent amount of value right now in triple Bs. So if you look at the spread relationships from different credit ratings, single A's are very rich to double A's right now. There's a little bit more value in triple Bs to single A's. Now, this relationship is not wide by historical standards as we've discussed nothing really is right now. But we see some potential for triple Bs to narrow relative to single A's. In contrast, when you look at the single A to double A relationship, that is near multi-year historical tights right now. And this is typical of a yield grab environment. It typically starts with the highest credit quality and moves out the credit spectrum. So we think that triple Bs are going to outperform single A's. And if you look even further out the credit spectrum, the double B to triple B relationship, or the, the fallen angel spread, as we call it, is at multi-year wides right now. And so this cheapness of triple Bs could be somewhat a function of fallen angel risk, but we think that all these relationships are going to start to narrow in the next few months as there becomes more clarity with respect to the economic fundamentals in the medium term. Finally, I just want to talk very briefly about a bit of news surrounding GSE reform after FHFA and Treasury agreed to some new amendments to the senior preferred stock purchase agreements that govern GSE conservatorships. I'm not going to go super in depth, but it is an important story. And I'll just hit the very high level bullet points that came out of the amendment. So I think the big headline obviously is that the GSEs will be allowed to build capital now and they'll be allowed to build capital until they reach the capital goals established in the recently finalized 2020 GSE capital rule. So that rule is the one that calls for them to hold approximately $275 billion worth of liquidity compared to the current cushion that's allowed of $45 billion. So obviously, a ton of liquidity that needs to be built there. It's going to take them at least a decade if they do it just via retained earnings. So this basically means that the GSEs aren't going to be paying dividends to the Treasury for the foreseeable future. So as compensation for no longer receiving dividends, I think the key point here is that now Treasury's ownership stake in the GSEs, referred to as their valuation preference, is going to increase by the amount of each GSE's net worth going forward. So the big factor heading into these amendments, since they were widely expected, but the one unknown was whether or not Treasury would reduce its ownership stake in the GSEs and potentially pave the way to letting them out of conservatorship. It turns out not only did they not lower their ownership stake, but they actually sort of went the other way as it will continue to increase. Now, there is, you know, at the end of the amendments, there's a call for FHFA and Treasury to put forth a plan in front of the Biden administration by the end of September where Treasury's ownership stake is going to be reexamined, so potentially restructured at that point. I think it actually says explicitly looking at restructuring Treasury's ownership. But for right now, it did not go down. It only went up. And so, you know, where does this leave us? Basically, the Trump administration has now punted GSE reform to the Biden administration, and, and the Biden administration is not expected to make GSE reform a priority. And so we're, we're just back to kind of square one, where we've always been with GSE reform, that there's no real path in sight. So it's going to be a very, very close alignment between the GSEs and Treasury for the foreseeable future. There were some other changes, most notably that the, their retained mortgage portfolio was now capped at $225 billion. Doesn't really have any impact. That was already the FHFA mandated cap. Now they've just codified that into the SPSPAs. So a lot of sort of things were changed cosmetically, but at the heart of it, nothing's really changed. The GSE is going to remain in conservatorship for the foreseeable future. So just wanted to talk about that. Obviously, we can go in more detail. If anyone has interest, please feel free to reach out to us on that or anything else, really. And I think that'll wrap up this week's edition. So thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.